Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guest this week is James Frankham, the publisher of New Zealand Geographic, an adventurer and an advocate for the great outdoors. In 2019, he was named a Blake leader by the Sir Peter Blake Trust for his work in using virtual reality to showcase the undersea world of the Hauraki Gulf. And it's the ocean that really gets James worked up, a contributor to the 20-year report into the state of the Gulf, James was outraged by the findings only just recently in the most recent report and he's begun a crusade, or at least he looks like he's on a crusade, to turn the tide on this precious habitat, the jewel in Auckland's crown. Welcome to this climate business. Kara. Uh, I'm going to read to you a quote you were quoted in The Guardian saying, I don't come to outrage very easily, but I was outraged by the lack of political action. This is in regard to the state of the Gulf. What made you so outraged, James? Yeah, that was a bit of a watershed night, to be honest. Uh, we're all down gathered in the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron. With um, we'd had the uh, the formal welcome, we'd had the minister speak, we'd had uh, uh, Clark Gayford was emceeing, and and it was all very formal. And they rolled through the um, the uh, yet another sort of retinue of, of disaster for the Hauraki Gulf, the sixth annual report. And uh, every report um, over the past 20 years has been a little bit worse than the last. And um, it ended with a plea to um, make sure that you use recyclable um, coffee cups and everybody sloped out the door feeling pretty bewildered. And um, yeah, I, I was I was shocked um, and shortly afterwards I, was, I felt this sort of rising rage and you know like I said in that in that piece in a, in a piece that I sort of uh, summoned uh, the next morning in a bit of an outburst it was um, it was a rage that was sort of felt by a number of other people in the room that had campaigned really hard for the Hurtiki Gulf um, I think we need to recognise that over the past 20 years there have been a lot of people put a lot of effort in uh, but it hasn't made a dent you know it hasn't had the effect that um, in fact it's worse it's considerably worse. You know, it's, this it's a cliff-like collapse. Th- yeah. This report comes 20 years after the Gulf was declared a marine park. Mm. Uh, a marine park, it's our, uh, it's our first and only national park of the sea. So, What is a marine park? It's, it's because I noticed in the statistics only 0.05 of the Gulf is actually a marine reserve. Yeah, so what's the difference? It's 0.3% of the Hauraki Gulf is a marine reserve, which means it's no take. You you can't take fish or other organisms um, out of it. Out uh, of the 0.3? Out of the 0.3%. Um, and what's the rest of it then? If, if, if it's a if it's a uh, marine park, what does that mean? It's an entity, essentially, that uh, you can legislate around and um, there's uh, a Hauraki Gulf Forum that is set up around it to, uh, you know, essentially it's a vulnerable uh, zone that, that people have attempted to protect over 20 years and um, to measure and monitor and, and all the rest of it, but it doesn't really enjoy any protection. So our National Park of the Sea is something that we can walk into and walk out of with 
native species in our hands. We can we can fish uh, in that. Uh, nat- National Park of the Sea, we can fish and we can sell that fish. We can, um, sell, we can operate commercially. So it's we can like operate walk- commercially. So it's as if you walk into a national park and, and walk out with seven kiwi under your arms. And, you know, uh, that's, but that's that's how it is um, in the marine environment. It's, it's seen to be a, a place that we exploit, a place that we can extract from, um, quite unlike the terrestrial environment. I mean, I just read some of the statistics numbers I'm sure you're familiar with but are amazing crayfish functionally extinct mm. that means the that there's less than 1% of their unfished level left which means that they can't reproduce as a species so they're on a slippery slope to oblivion snapper down to 20% of their pre-fishing levels that's a fifth of their native natural population that's right that's actually on the up um, so they got down uh, somewhere around about 17% of unfished levels and have um, bounced back a little bit after we changed the bag limit on, on snapper. So that's 20% is, is good news. <laughs> anchovies and pilchards. I mean, anchovies and pilchards all, all but disappeared. Yeah, that's particularly horrifying because anchovies and pilchards are at the bottom of the food chain. So that's what all life is built on, that those what they're sort of unkindly perhaps called bait fish species and that has been caught uh, commercially using huge per seine nets and scooped out of the out of the Gulf. Seabirds, which were threatened with extinction, up from four percent only six years ago to twenty two percent now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean the the seabird population has crashed. Um, you you know, as a kid I used to go out into the Hariki uh, Gulf. I grew up on the on the shores of the Gulf and in, in Waiheke Channel. And at any given moment, there was always a swarm of kahawai birds. We call them kahawai birds because they followed the kahawai um, schools around. Um, but they're white-fronted terns, and everywhere there would be workups of terns at any given moment um, in Waiheke Channel. And there was a um, a whole colony of them just two bays away that used to nest on a point. And that colony's gone. The birds have gone. You might see a workup. I don't know, once every couple of months now. Where what where have they gone? What is having those terrible? Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> they're gone. They're, they're dead. Yeah, uh, yeah they've they're uh, gone. They haven't migrated somewhere else. Um, they've they've gone. You know, and and that's that's what decline looks like. And you know, the the difficult thing I suppose is that um, for some of these things, if we move now, if we intervene now, we can protect them and we can make a difference and some of these things will bounce back. We've seen that with a snapper, which were resilient species, really. Um, but for some, they're past the point of no return. Mm. There is damage done that is permanent and uh, cannot be undone, and that's the tragedy of it. What, what is the damage, and why is what's per- perpetuating this decline? Uh, well, there's sort of continuous pressure, right, from um, extractive industry and also from, you know, so... The problem for the Gulf is that we take too much out and we put the wrong stuff back in. Mm. So in terms of taking things out, we're taking out fish for recreational purposes. We're taking out fish for um, commercial purposes. Um, we are putting in um, sediment. We are putting in uh, nitrogen. Mm-hmm. The sediment comes from property development uh, Yeah, it comes from both rural and urban sources. Um in the context of the Hauraki Gulf, it's mostly rural sources. So mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, runoff from land, which includes you know fertilisers and nitrogen and, and 
uh, phosphates and, and, and effluent, of course, um, particularly from the Hauraki Plains. Um, and, you know, that, that's about sort of 40% of the sediment that you're, you're finding in. The other 60% right. is pretty much the, the churn of sediment that's already down there, just getting with wave action and the rest of it. Uh, and yeah, and, it, and it's um, silt coming down from you know when it rains into first order streams, which the streams that don't run every day but run when it, run when it rains. You have stock walking through them. You have the ground turned up. Um, yeah, you fix that by uh, by fencing, by doing fifteen meter planting for away from the streamway. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of um, you know what happens on land affects what happens in the sea. Yeah, and what role does fishing both recreational and commercial fishing have on the fishing stocks? I would say that today that is the primary driver of decline in the Hauraki Gulf. Um, if you look at snapper, for instance, the recreational fishery is larger than the commercial fishery. Mm. So around about uh, 4,000 tonnes um, removed every year by recreational fishers, um, and if anything, that's underreported, and about 3,800 um, removed commercially. Right. Um, other species of fish, kahawai and things, are, are different. Um, you know, people don't go out fishing and are delighted when they catch a blue mackerel. But there's heaps of you know commercial fishing of, uh, of blue mackerel and uh, and and other species like that. Things like tarakihi, they're in real trouble. You know, you'd be hard pressed to um, pull up a tarakihi trevally. Um, there were once um, you know schools of feeding trevally that covered hectares. You know, and and now you're delighted because you see a, a, a school that might cover, you know, 20, 30, 40 square metres or something, but um, it, it's a fraction of what it used to be. And your outrage it seems entirely justified, given everything you've just described about the state of the Gulf and the report itself. But your direction was towards the political leadership. That's what you were quoted in the media about. What, why the politicians? Uh, it seems that we all, you know, all of us have... Yeah, we're all complicit in our own way, but um, these things need uh, sometimes need leadership. Um, sometimes they need uh, regulation. Um, commercial fishers are not going to simply um, slow down the take unless there's some regulation, and that needs to happen uh, politically. Um, uh, marine protected areas um, don't get drawn on a map by. Uh, by just anybody, you know, that, that needs to be uh, created by government. And um, so to protect the Gulf in, in that sense, yes, that needs to be um, legislated. Uh, there are, you can make all sorts of voluntary concessions, um, but individual action, uh, that, that's, that's pretty hard when you've got a, something on this kind of scale. And, you know, you liken it to um, climate, <laughs> you know, to pick something out of the air, uh, mm. and and a similar problem. I mean, we can all go around and change the light bulbs in our house, but um, at some level, there needs to be some political will, some political leadership. Um, I think back to uh, in the the eighties, the the issue with the halocarbons uh, going into the atmosphere and the ozone mm. hole. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. Um, here is a global problem, atmospheric and invisible. You know not unlike climate, not unlike the things that are happening under the sea, and yet we solved it. There was the 1982 Montreal Protocol. Um, we decided to reduce uh, halocarbons. The US, in that particular case, took leadership. And today, uh, that ozone hole is smaller than it's been since 1982. 
that's a solved problem. Can it's, be done. It can be done. It was global. It was invisible. It was um, up there. It was uh, industrial, uh, and it and it came down to consumer behaviour as well. It was our refrigerants and our aerosols and and all of that sort of thing. But it was fixed. What happened after you? Um had your rage and you're still having your rage <laughs> yeah. which is fantastic you were on TVNZ you were in newspapers you you wrote extensively about it in mm. uh, New Zealand Geo um, what happened as, as a result of that has have other people joined you in your sense of outrage yeah I believe so I mean there's been a lot of um, feedback you know personally um, uh, a lot of people sort of following uh, what has been happening what has been said and there's been quite a number of, uh, what do we call them, uh, people with interests or experts or people across the spectrum from uh, marine scientists to ecologists to fishers to people that are trying to get up things for electric ferries to um, you know, dozens of um, people that have joined in on sort of three uh, WhatsApp groups that I'm mm-hmm. uh, curating, if you like, and, and continuing to stir the pot and align ideas and um, and try and get everything moving in a similar direction or create some joint messaging mm. around this to um, drum up some interest. Um, I've been having you know beer and burger nights with a lot of you know recreational fishers to sort of understand really um, uh, the position uh, that they're in and um, to get a sense of uh, I suppose what measures they're willing to take uh, and what about at a political level? Did the councillors and the people effectively in charge, did they mm. walk away in shame? Was there a sense of embarrassment that's leading to action? Or has COVID just kind of swallowed everything up? Uh, well, it has swallowed, you know, a lot as we know. Um, I think it's also generated a lot of interest in building back in a, in a different form, I suppose. Um, looking at what a sustainable economy might look like or or looking at infrastructure projects that are green in origin and, and an output. Um, and so there's been a lot of um, uh, very wishful and ideological things posted on YouTube and, and places about this. But I, my fear, I suppose, is that uh, the incentive now will be on economic growth at any cost. Yeah. You know, it will be like we've, we've got to put dollars back in people's pockets and so we're fast tracking the RMA where we're trying to um, remove some of those you know um, those hoops and things that mm. uh, protect the environment um, so it could sort of go one of two ways and I rather fear it's going the wrong way um, as for the political response uh, it, it's it's very difficult um, uh, Minister Eugenie Sage I think is very interested in um, rebuilding the Gulf. She's very interested in marine protection. Um, she is outside of cabinet, however. Um, uh, fisheries is inside of cabinet. Um, it, it's one of those primary industries. Um, likewise, uh, New Zealand First, uh, which is inside of cabinet, has a uh, certain perspective on on fisheries that um, uh, is, is proving pretty difficult to to broker in terms of uh, reduction in take or in, in terms of marine protection or in terms of conversations like this. Um, but again, I, I feel like there are a lot of entrenched positions in the Hauraki Gulf like there are in, you know, like there is around climate and things as well. So um, it's a case of putting down the bags and moving to the centre of the room, um, leaving those entrenched positions and, and looking for ways in which 
where you can get together and, and have conversations. There must be a recognition amongst all those players that without a functioning ecosystem, there is no whatever. There is no industry. There is no recreational fishing. There is no tourism. There mm. is no place to live if, in fact, uh, the whole environment is dead. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things that is, I suppose, of benefit for um, when you're looking to um, extract uh native species out of uh, the natural environment you need a functioning ecosystem you need a natural environment to extract from exactly and so that that has to exist and there has to be a level of protection um, but there is a supposed disagreement on what that protection looks like or how it's legislated the one thing that everybody can agree on every time is that everybody wants abundance that's the word that is of most interest to uh, consumers to the ecologists to the scientists to the commercial fishers to the recreational fishers and, and you know to iwi as well everybody wants abundance um, so but how like, you get there it sounds like magic <laughs> but how you get there is I mean that, for, to get abundance we're going to have to stop doing some things right until things recover for example yeah and or yeah. do things differently I'm not actually I don't think I've ever suggested that we stop fishing you know I, I think uh, there would be a lot of people that would object to that, and you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly big fisher myself, but um, I, I don't think we need to stop fishing. I think we need to fish differently. In what way? Uh, we need to take less, and we need to get rid of destructive fishing practices. And what's an example of a destructive fishing practice? Okay, in the in the context of recreational fishing, a destructive fishing practice is uh, scallop dredge, where you drag it across the bottom. And you catch some scallops, and you catch starfish, and you catch you know, you know anything that the net goes past, and you leave behind that scallop dredge a wake of destruction um, that no longer uh, supports life. Um, the scallop dredges are small, but there are thousands of them, and sort that, of the that is a destructive fishing method for recreational fishing, as is a set line or a set net where the fish person where the fish doesn't get to make a decision about what they kill or what they don't kill it kills everything that takes it so that's another one and commercial fishing it's bottom trawling it's danish seining and to a certain extent purse seining as well those are things that rumble along the bottom and wipe out everything and scoop up everything they're very very efficient that's why they're used but uh, they they pick up fish in the worst possible way and they're indiscriminate killing machines. And so when you when you land them, the fish that you put back may or may not survive. There's a you know, a very high sort of mortality. When you talk to fishermen, they must have a sense of the destruction that is happening. And is there a sense of responsibility about that? Or or do they see uh, are they do they actually object to the to the science and, and the data? I think if you speak with uh, recreational fishers, they they love the natural environment. They love fish. They love fishing. They love being out there. They love that ecosystem. They know a lot about it. Um, and so yeah, they must have noticed over the years the decline. They would have noticed the decline. Um, they, I don't, I think they would, yeah, my instinct, um, speaking with a lot of them, is that they are underestimating the effect that individuals have at scale. Mm. Um, there is that amazing thing that happens that each generation loses the ability to calibrate what 
what it previously was. So, yeah. you know, my... Shifting baseline syndrome. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, you know, I might be used to seeing three snapper and my children might be used to seeing two and, and so on. And your yeah. experience with, with the golf is very personal, right? You grew up in, in Auckland and did you... you yeah, you're, I grew up in Auckland. You're, spent, you're a kid you know, of the water. Yeah, I spent every summer of my life um, at a little bay at the bottom end of Waiheke. Um, there's one little fibrolite batch in the bay and, and lived out our summers there. Uh, you know, as a you know, sandy beach, we would have um, eagle rays in the shallows. We would have uh, big, you know, scores of kahuai going through every now and again. A kingfish would, would come through the bay and you'd see it jumping and all the little fish disappear. Sometimes you'd have um, eagle rays all shoot up into the sand and you wonder what's going on and then a, an orca comes up in the middle of the bay. So, Amazing. Yeah, a, a very sort of... Um, you had a very deep connection with, with that place and, and, and still do and have seen that change over my lifetime you know, considerably. And that's where your interest in outdoors started from? Was that something your parents gave you? or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always just been one of those places that is of endless you know sort of curiosity to me i suppose what where is that curiosity taken you uh, you know to different parts of the world yeah i've done a have been very very lucky to do a a lot of traveling um probably the most was uh after you know did a bit of an oe and and did a lot of traveling then but then came back to new zealand and and got aboard a research vessel that uh, went around the world over um, over two years, and so I was on board the boat for two years, and I was the I was a media specialist aboard that boat, so I was taking photographs and and writing and and producing a what was then sort of a social media, you know, as a daily blog that people would read every day. We would upload that over satellite from you know from a little bay in, um, the, you know, in a tiny island and outside of. Bismarck Archipelago in Papua New Guinea or we might be in uh, Indonesia or we might be in the middle of the Indian Ocean and and people would tune in and um, you know read about what we did that day or what we saw and, and we'd upload photos over satellite and things like that so I've basically been sort of trying to recreate that for most of my life and <laughs> in, in my working life you know uh, then went on to doing documentary film work um, uh, here and overseas you know particularly overseas uh, and that was largely social in, in nature, so that took me to Afghanistan and Pakistan and Papua New Guinea and Iran and all sorts of interesting places. And and, and with always with an environmental lens. Uh, most mm-hmm. of the the documentary work was more social in nature, the social documentary. Um, and uh, subsequent to that, of uh, was doing a lot of photography and writing um, more in the environmental space, and and then came aboard as editor of New Zealand Geographic and and. Um, then myself and a, a business partner bought New Zealand Geographic in 2011 or so. And that's in itself quite an adventure heading into publishing. Uh, how does that compare to um, travelling through Afghanistan? Yeah, well, it, it's you know no less dangerous, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, recent times might suggest. Uh, yeah, I mean it's been it's been quite a ride, and I feel like a lot of what I learnt from doing web media and screen media uh, in the 2000s, I, I took into the 2010s, and in terms of the um, our response um, in terms of publishing. Um, so New Zealand Geographic has a you know, very, very large sort of online presence, um, a, a lot of work on social. We do a lot of broadcast on a uh, webcast for New Zealand on air as well. So it's a, it's sort of um, it's a bit of a toolbox that, that we, we bring to uh, publishing. Yeah. Not many people are making a buck in publishing at the moment and I should know I, I ran my own media company as you know mm. and um, and was pleased to get out of it um, 
what you're still in the media business. You intend to stay in the media business? Is it working for you? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love um, creating something, um, and I love the process. I love the people that we get to work with, um, whether it's you know, the editor of the magazine or or you know writers and photographers who come to us with sort of half-baked ideas and we all put them together um, that process is really amazing I love the uh, becoming an expert on something for a two-month period and then dropping it again it sort of suits my um, uh, you know my interests and my uh, attention span um, and the material that New Zealand Geographic's producing is it just really really resonates with me in terms of the treatment um, in terms of the long-form journalism in terms of the uh, the photojournalism that goes into it, the quality of it, and, and using these the media. increasingly thing. rare, right? So, so few people are producing long-form journalism, particularly in print. Mm. Um, are you finding, because there's so little um, available, actually, has that increased your opportunity for subscribers and maybe even advertising? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I don't know. That remains to be seen. Um, I... I think that there is definitely an appetite for long-form journalism, and we've seen um, definitely an uptick in interest. You know, particularly over the lockdown period, you know, we had 250% more web traffic. You know, our sales of the magazine are uh, about 300% up at the moment on on the rack. So there is uh, people sort of turning back to those trusted sources at present and, and sources that they know and respect particularly at this time when you know everything is a bit topsy-turvy and, and mm. you sort of wonder how much you can uh, trust or believe in in some channels um, but yeah I think it, long form journalism is an amazing thing and I'd certainly really enjoy being part of it um, the, the whole advertising aspect is um, is pretty tough at the moment uh, you know, I just got off the phone with our advertising sales manager, and and you know we're about sixty percent down on the current issue, and yeah. you know we were sixty percent down on the last one before then it was fine. Um, so the the bottom has really fallen out of that. But then we've got more retail sales, we've got more subscriptions, and so it's you know the readers are compensating. At what this extent point. can you uh, form um, opportunities across? So you've got the print publication and the online, and you've experienced filmmaker and videographer have you been able to use those skills in the platform to create other types of media events or um, documentary making are there other yeah. sources of funding for instance that could yeah we've uh, we've um, we run the photographer of the year which is the biggest visual arts um, event in New Zealand now I believe um, and then there's uh, we have the NZVR project which is a big film production funded by New Zealand and Air and um, yeah, tell us a bit about that because I mentioned that at the beginning is um, you were recognised for it from the Peter Blake Trust, amongst yeah. other things, I'm sure. But um, you know that's a really interesting project and it's ongoing, right? And it, the idea, I as I understand it, is really to bring what's not seen seen. So you know the point about the the golf is that it looks fine. There are still waves. There is still water there. But your point is, it's what's underneath that counts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Uh, you know, we did it together with the Black Trust, and at that time, um, Pew Charitable Trust as well. And we came together, sort of thinking, well, you know, there's this divorce, if you like, between uh, our you know people and the natural environment, and and how do you make that marriage happen? Um, can we use the screens that are um, part of the problem to be part of the solution? And we decided that uh, the reason 
for that for many of our um, environmental problems is a, is a lack of empathy, a lack of care. And um, the reason for that is that lack of first-hand experience. So the only way as human beings that um, we empathise with something is if we experience it first. Uh, VR gives us the ability to give people that experience at scale. So we can take you under salt water, you know, under 20 metres of salt water, we can take you uh, onto a glacier, we can take you into a limestone cave, um, all at the click of a button. And that's the promise of VR, and we've spent the last sort of two years uh, making good on that, I suppose. We've delivered uh, about 800,000 VR experiences over that time. 800,000? 800,000, uh, 800, yeah. Um, that's been over social or uh, over the web or to schools um, with VR headsets, which is what the Black Trust are doing, they're toting them around schools, and that's been 155,000 delivered to school kids um, all around And the Auckland. reception? What, what's the reaction when people put on a headset? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, the, the kids are sort of feel like they're underwater. They're, they're screaming. They're, you know, some of them are holding hands because they're scared. Um, it, it's a visceral reaction to mm. that sense that you're really there. Um, people have to be sitting down when they put the headset on because they will, you know, if the camera moves, they just fall over. Um, it, it is a uh, really affecting uh, sort of experience. And it, even at sort of one minute long, you'll take the headset off and, and for a moment you have to recalibrate that you're actually in a room sitting on a couch, not not still this up at the three things. This must be very satisfying to you as a filmmaker. To, it takes it up a whole new level. It, it really does, yeah. It's that... Um, you know, if, if you have a sense of suspended disbelief in a theatre, um, this is really next level. And uh, we've more recently been working with stereoscopic uh, VR, which is actually where you have twice as many cameras and you're projecting something in the left eye that's different from the right eye. Mm -hmm. So um, it's 3D, 360, and that's even more sort of sensational. Uh, and so as part of that, we've done a lot of travelling as well. We um, went all the way up to the Three Kings off the North Cape of New Zealand, you know, around past Cape Ringer and 100 kilometres out. Uh, we've been, uh, spent a lot of time down in, uh, at White Island, uh, both in the water and, you know, on the island. That was in uh, in May before, sorry, March before the, eight months before the eruption. Uh, we sailed all the way up to the Kermadec Islands and did work up there. Um, we did work in, in Niue, uh, in the Waikato River. And this uh, is funded you know, by the the two trusts that you mentioned. Yeah, and uh, substantial funding from New Zealand on air as right. well. Yeah. So, yeah. and across all of those things, you know, it's been interesting. I've been there, so I've been part of that production, and you see a lot of similar themes emerging. You see those um, themes of uh, extraction uh, always having an effect on everywhere you go, um, pollution having an effect, each at different level depending on the different sites. And and you know, I suppose the through line on on all of those sites that that big story is that climate story. You know that. Um, where you're seeing you know, erosion because of sea level rise, um, you're seeing ocean acidification, um, you're seeing deoxygenation of, of the uh, ocean environment as well. So um, that, yeah, that really plays out pretty much everywhere you go. Uh, increased intensity of storms. You know, I noticed that up in Niue, went diving, and there were big Gorgonian fans that had been growing for centuries, you know, lying on their side because they'd been scooped up by the last cyclone. Right, so, yeah. yeah. And your point is that... Uh, by exposing at least the information mm. and then hopefully a layer of an emotional experience on top of it, 
that kind of engagement will begin is the first step in the process to appreciating what's yeah, well, happening to the natural world. Yeah, experience yields empathy. Empathy is the only means by which we uh, engage and, and act on something. So, what do you yeah. hope will happen in the next few years? What what has to happen for you to be able to go back to your batch at Waiheke, um, if it's still there, and maybe even one day see an orca pop out out of the sea again? Yeah, I mean, I, I I hope that the orcas will keep you know coming around in the in the near future as well. Um, I I think that um, we need to reconnect with our natural environment on a sort of profoundly new level, um, and I think importantly, uh, Western society is the only society where we can somehow divorce rights and responsibilities that we can hold those two things apart and give rights to one group and responsibilities to another group so say right you have the right to fish this area for instance and this group over here is in charge of regulating you and that's that's very very unusual in the rest of the world in the indigenous world uh, where rights and responsibilities um, act on a single party and uh, you don't have to look any further than uh, the Tao Māori to, to see how that functions and how kaitiakitanga functions uh, where rights and responsibilities are wedded together that you it, it's about gifts and gains you don't get to take without having some level of stewardship over where you're taking that from mm. so adopting that on a, on a larger level being able to see that and understand uh, that and work that into our legislation and our actions is is what I sort of hope for. Mm. And your kids, will they be seeing what? Will they be seeing rays in the bay? Well, right now, my kids are not seeing what I saw as a kid, you know, and I find that, um, you know, really distressing, <laughs> you know, fundamentally. Um, but I also know that I didn't see what my dad saw, you know, as a kid, nor his dad, and uh, and so there's been this sort of long, very long decline. Um, I hope that um, we're at the bottom of that now. I hope that you know we've seen a rebound in snapper from 17% to 20%, which isn't much to get it excited about. And you know, 20% is still a very low score, but I'm hoping that there's enough awareness out there that we're going to see. It restored that my children will see it at its low point and then see what I've never seen you know if people so, want to get on board particularly with the golf project and uh, join you in protest and, and action and doing and talking and so on how do they do that James what, what's the best way well I think that firstly is um, is voting right <laughs> you know um, thinking very very carefully about where you put your vote strategically so that it applies some pressure to government and to agencies to respond in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I think individual action is important as well, you know, taking a bit less, being careful about what we put in. Um, yeah, we've just started a series uh, called Fixable um, with Geographic and so if, um, on ncgo.com slash fixable uh, there will be a series there of of stories of different locations around New Zealand. The Hauraki Golf was the first one that we did and we sort of covered 
you know, how we fix this mm. and, and very sort of solutions-based mm, journalism. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at the McKenzie country next, you know, that's a whole different set of problems. But um, what it shares, what it, all of these sites share is that it is actually possible to fix the problem. We just haven't done it yet because our rights have got in the way of our responsibilities. Um, yeah, so... James Rankin, it was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, really encourage everyone to subscribe. <laughs> NewZealandGeographic.com. How much is a sub, James? Uh, 50 bucks for digital, 74 for print. But you, know, you can also go in for free and, and have a good look around before you bother subscribing too. I can tell you as a publisher, subscriptions are gold. Yeah. <laughs> and worth worth every cent as a reader. So thanks for coming on the show and all the best with your campaigning for the golf and um, you know look forward to getting you back on the show maybe in a year's time or hopefully seeing some progress. Mm, very good. No, thanks, Vincent. Thanks. Yeah. And just a reminder, everyone, thanks for listening, but uh, we are part of a collective called Podcasts NZ and there are plenty of other podcasts that are relevant, including EV. Um, the EV podcast and in fact um, Theo Gibson who runs that show knows more than anyone should about EVs so if you're interested in EVs have a listen to EV podcast with Theo Gibson thanks James we'll um, see you soon thanks for listening to This Climate Business I hope you enjoyed the program there are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website thisclimatebusiness.com I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.